Over the past six weeks, we've been studying Jesus' suffering and his death and his resurrection. And one of the big reasons for this was to gain a fresh perspective on the events that we celebrate at Easter. Because many times these events of Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection can become a bit commonplace. We can easily take them for granted when, we're, when we become familiar with them. But then one of the other reasons that we did this was because these events of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection are so important if we want to have a relationship with God. Because it's only through what Jesus did on the cross and through his resurrection that sin and death can ultimately be defeated. And that through faith in him we can gain eternal life. Now I think when we come to this time of year, the week after Easter, it's easy to begin to take for granted um, the things that took place. Where we think, okay... Easter was really nice. We had a great time celebrating Jesus' resurrection. It was nice music. We enjoyed that. Now it's time to get back to normal life. But we need to recognize that Jesus' resurrection wasn't the end of the story. I mean, the disciples who were there following Jesus throughout Jesus' life, they continued to live. After Jesus accomplished such a great uh, thing for us in, in, in buying salvation through his death and his resurrection for us, now this gift of salvation needs to be communicated to the whole world so that people can receive the gift that Jesus offers, the gift of eternal life. And so today we're beginning a new sermon series, really picking up right where we left off last week. Last week we talked about the resurrection. This week we're uh, picking up right where that left off with what takes place next. Specifically looking at the book of Acts to see how did the gospel, how the good news of what Christ did for us, move around the world, get to people's lives so they could receive it? How did they even get to us today? Because if Jesus was simply uh, resurrected, then that was it, end of story. We wouldn't be gathered here today at all. Instead, something took place through the years. And so that's why we're beginning this sermon series today on the book of Acts. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, there it would be one in the pew or the chair in front of you. Acts is in the New Testament. It's the fifth book. Uh, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you have Acts. Acts um, is a really exciting book. It's a very fast-paced book. Uh, we definitely aren't going to be looking at, it, looking at it as much depth as we could because that could take years. Instead, we're going to take a handful of weeks to look at what could be called turning points through the book of Acts. These are significant events, uh, significant shifts that took place in the early church which accelerated the spread of the gospel. Now, if you look at your bulletin cover, anyone have a bulletin? Thank you. If you look at your bulletin cover, it kind of shows the vision for what we are seeking to do in this series. It's actually probably my favorite bulletin cover we've had so far here in my time at Frieden's. You look at two maps on here. The top map is of the Roman Empire. Uh, it's, it's not the entire Roman Empire, but it is the part where a significant portion of the book of Acts took place. And so we're starting uh, by looking in the book of Acts to see what did God do back then to spread the gospel. You look at the map on the bottom, it's a map of this area right around us. Now, I do recognize that there are definitely a lot of people who attend here at Freedens, who are active here, who live in an area that's outside of this exact map. Those are the restraints of graphic design and printing. Um, so please don't take it personally if you live in an area that's not quite on that map. But, but get the symbolism here that we are looking at what God did 2,000 years ago in the early church to spread the gospel. And we are asking, what can we learn from what happened then to see God do similar things in spreading the gospel through our communities today? And so we're beginning this, 
this study of the book of Acts called Turning Points. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to dive right in. So let's pray. Father, as we come to this new series, as we come to this new season after Easter, we pray that you will open our eyes in fresh ways to how you want to get the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to the whole world. God, open our eyes and give us your Holy Spirit to empower us to understand Scripture and to live out these truths in our lives. And we pray these things for Jesus' glory in his name. Amen. First of all, I want to give a little bit of background to Acts. You may or may not be familiar with it, but the author of Acts is a man who we could call Dr. Luke. He's called Dr. Luke because he was a doctor. His name was Luke. He was a medical doctor, just as we have medical doctors today. Luke was a man who was not one of the original 12 disciples. In fact, there's no evidence that he ever had any personal contact with Jesus during his earthly ministry. But he has written a significant portion of our New Testament. He wrote, first of all, what we know as the Gospel of Luke, the biography of Jesus written by Luke. And he also wrote this book, Acts. And he put a lot of work into writing these books. He was very meticulous in his research, making sure that he got the details just right. I want to refer us back to the beginning of Luke chapter 1, which tells us of the process that he went through and some of his reasoning. I'm just going to read the first few verses of Luke. Luke writes that many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that, that you have been taught. And so Luke here indicates that he is writing this account. Many others have written an account of what took place in Jesus' life, but Luke says that he carefully investigated everything from the beginning, and it seemed good to him to write an orderly account of what took place. And Luke, because of his education as a medical doctor, was very well equipped to write this detailed orderly account. We even see it in the way that he writes. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. Luke's Greek and Luke and Acts, it has the most advanced grammar and vocabulary of any of the New Testament. It's the education coming through. He is well equipped to write these books. And he applies the same uh, meticulous research and care as he writes the book of Acts. Now, uh, we see the author is Dr. Luke. The recipient of both Luke and Acts was this man named Theophilus. Theophilus is a name that simply means friend of God. Now, we know quite little about Theophilus. It was a fairly common name back then. Um, there are a couple of reasonable hypotheses of who uh, Theophilus was. He's referred to in both the beginning of Luke and the beginning of Acts. And uh, I think one of the reasonable hypotheses of who Theophilus was was that he was a financial backer of these writings, that he wanted to get the story of Jesus out to as many people as possible, and so he financially subsidized the publishing of these stories. And he, he commissioned or came alongside of Luke as he was writing these in order to financially back the publishing of them. I think one other reasonable hypothesis is that Theophilus may have been a recent convert to Christianity, but he was wavering some of his faith because of the persecution that the churches of, of Christ were undergoing. And so Luke was writing to strengthen his faith. I think there's reasonable evidence for both of these. Maybe it's a hybrid of these hypotheses. But the bottom line is that Luke wrote these, these books, Luke and Acts, 
uh, to Theophilus. And regardless of the reasoning for it, regardless of who Theophilus was, we now have a terrific account of what happened in Jesus' life and what happened in the early church. I want to begin by reading the first 11 verses of Acts to kind of set the setting, set the stage of what's taking place here. We're going to look today at a couple of passages in the first two chapters of Acts. Beginning in in verse 1, Luke says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem But wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After Jesus had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white, which were angels, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So here we have the the beginning of the book of Acts. Uh, And Luke begins by referencing that Jesus has an ongoing ministry that's taking place here. Oftentimes, as I referenced earlier, we think with with the closing of of the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, with Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' ascension into heaven, that's the end of the story. Luke says, no, it's not. He says that earlier in the Gospel of Luke, he wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. He wrote about what Jesus began to do, but he's saying, look, Jesus is still working today. He might be in heaven. I mean, before he had his earthly ministry, now he has his ministry from heaven, but Jesus is still working. So in reality, the book of Acts is an account of what Jesus is continuing to do through the early church And today when we see God at work in our lives or in our midst and in our country and our world, it's Jesus still working here in this world from up in heaven. He is still active in his ongoing ministry today. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus said, I'll build my church. And the book of Acts and what we even see God doing in the world today is evidence of Jesus continuing to work in the world to build his church today. Now as we move on to verse 3 here in this passage, we see that Jesus was talking with his disciples about the kingdom of God. And he told them, you know, you guys, you need to wait here in Jerusalem. Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak about. And this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus has been, I mean, great things have just happened. He died, which was really sad for the disciples. But then he was resurrected, which was great. Their faith was radically strengthened in that. And he had given them a commission to go represent him to the world. But he said, wait in Jerusalem. Wait. Don't go yet. 
And, you know, it's hard for us humans to wait, isn't it? I mean, we get impatient, especially if we have something exciting to share, something exciting to do. We want to go do it now. We struggle to wait. This starts at an early age. I think of Micaiah, my son. He's three and a half. He had a rough experience about six, and a half, or six weeks ago or so when he didn't wait very well. It was bath time for him. He'd get, he got all stripped down for the bath. And Shelly realized we don't have pajamas in the bathroom for him to get him warm right after he gets out of the bath. So she said, Micaiah, wait here. I will come right back in. I'm just running to your room real quick. You're going to grab pajamas be back. I mean, it was like a 15-second round-trip journey. Micaiah said he would wait. He's old enough to know that he should wait. I mean, it's not like leaving a little tiny baby. But something happened because all of a sudden there was a thump. And I was downstairs, and I heard this thump. And, you know, I hear thumps upstairs on a regular basis. Uh, every time I hear a thump, I, I stop and listen to see if there's any crying immediately afterwards. Normally there's not. Normally it's just a ju- someone jumping or something like that. This time there was very quick and loud crying. And Shelly ran back in. I, I ran upstairs, and Micaiah was in the tub. He, he couldn't wait. He tried to get in on his own. And we don't know exactly what happened and we still don't know how he got into the position that he got into in the tub. But he was scared. He struggled to wait. And, I mean, it traumatized him so much that baths were very hard for him for the next month or so. Month or so. so if you smelled him at all during the last few weeks, <laughs> that might explain it. But, you know, that, that challenge, that impatience starts at an early age, and it continues on through life that, as adults, if you're an adult, you probably struggle to wait too. Jesus told them, though, Wait. Wait, don't leave Jerusalem. Don't go embark on this mission yet because there's something that you need to receive from me. And he makes reference later on to what that is. He says in verse 8, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus has a mission he's giving to his disciples. Now, living here in, in this part of Wisconsin, we may not be familiar with the geography that Jesus is pointing to here. So let me just make clear what Jesus is talking about. Let me show you a little map of it. Jerusalem is a city there. It's the capital city. That's where uh, Jesus and his disciples were at this point. Uh, and then, so Jerusalem's a city. So Jesus is saying, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, but also in all Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria were regions of Israel, kind of like states, um, they were to the north and the south of Jerusalem. So Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria. So the circle gets bigger and to the ends of the earth. So Jesus is saying, you're going to be my witnesses everywhere, starting here and expanding outwardly. And what this points to is that Jesus expects the gospel to go out. I mean, the gospel is not a treasure that we hold inside uh, hold just for, for those who are already Christians. The gospel is meant to be communicated outside the walls of the church. But here at Freedens, we have this diagram that we call the up and out triangle that talks about the three key relationships that Christ followers should have. Your up relationship with God, your in relationship with other Christians within the body of Christ, and your out relationship with the world around you. And the gospel is right at the center of that because the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done, it drives and shapes each one of those key relationships. But what Jesus is saying here to the disciples is you have this key out relationship that you will be my witnesses taking the gospel to people who don't yet know about me. 
And so this is a reminder to us as well that as a church and as individuals, that we need to have an out relationship. It's easy to get focused on, on worshiping God and us and him and on, on being around other Christians, but there is also this out component of needing to have healthy relationships with non-Christians to help point them to Christ. And this is really one of the big reasons we're having this series. So Jesus gave his disciples a mission, but he said, wait, don't go out and embark on that mission because you need to have power to do this. This mission is so big and so important that you can't accomplish it unless you get power. And Jesus says this power comes from the Holy Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now you may have the question of, okay, what's the Holy Spirit all about? We hear about this phrase, what is the Holy Spirit? Well, the, the more correct way to ask that question is, who is the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, biblically, God is three persons in one entity. There is one God, but God exists as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They're three in one, the Trinity, a, a triunity. And they each, if you look biblically, they each have some kind of different general roles where God the Father seems to kind of oversee everything. God the Son, whom we know as Jesus during his earthly ministry, he came to work out redemption for us. And then God the Holy Spirit is the one who's active in our world today to empower us to live the Christian life, to empower us to have fruitful ministries. And, and uh, Jesus says, wait until you receive power from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. Now I brought a fun little toy today to illustrate a point. Fire truck. You know, a fire truck has a mission to accomplish. I mean, the fire truck, it's a life-saving mission, really, to go out and save buildings from fires, save anyone they find inside. The fire truck is, is quite useless, though, if it doesn't have an engine in it, isn't it? I mean, it can be all nice and shiny. You could go down to the fire station and look at this, the cool fire truck and look at the cool ladder that can go up and down on it. And I mean, you can hear the sirens and see the lights, and you can sit in the nice comfy seats in there. You can see, wow, the fire truck's pretty cool. But if a fire truck doesn't have an engine in it, it's practically useless for fulfilling its purpose. And I think this engine in the fire truck is a lot like the Holy Spirit in us. Granted, the analogy will break down if you push it far enough. But the Holy Spirit is what drives us. That we have a mission as a church, but if we try to accomplish it on our own, or if we ignore that mission, we are not going to be faithful to God. Instead, we need the power of the Holy Spirit driving us, empowering us, to be faithful witnesses for Christ in the same way that a fire truck cannot fulfill its mission if it does not have an engine inside of it to drive it. It might look nice, kind of like a church might look nice, and you might have some cool things. You could, I mean, you could ride the, the ladder up and down. You could sit in the seats. You could turn on the sirens. I mean, for some people, that's enough. But it doesn't accomplish its purpose if it can't actually go out and fight fires. In the same way, we need to be people who go out but are empowered by the Spirit, taking the gospel to the world around us. And then after this, in this passage, after Jesus says, wait, the Holy Spirit will come, come upon you, you'll be my witnesses, Jesus ascends into heaven. And this points to the significance of the Holy Spirit coming because that's still God's presence with us. I think we would have a lot more confidence as Christians if we had Jesus physically with us, guiding us, and, and I mean, wouldn't we? It would be kind of nice to have Jesus physically with us to, to show us what to do and tell us what to do and give us confidence and stuff. But we do have the Holy Spirit. Jesus is no longer with us, but the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside 
of everyone who has faith in Christ. So at this point, the disciples are waiting. Multiple days have passed. The main thing the disciples are doing is just gathering together and praying, and they're waiting for the coming Holy Spirit. Now I want to turn over to Acts chapter 2 to pick up the story to see how God is going to fulfill the promise that Jesus made that the Holy Spirit will come. I'm going to read beginning in verse 1 of, of Acts chapter 2. Luke says that when the day of Pentecost came, they, meaning the disciples, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? So we see here the time when the Holy Spirit came down upon the disciples. And he came in a very obvious way that, that other people noticed as well. I have to wonder, what were the disciples thinking was going to happen when the Holy Spirit came? I mean, they knew the Holy Spirit was going to come. That's what Jesus had said. But did they really know how the Holy Spirit was going to come? I'm really not sure. But the Holy Spirit definitely made his presence very well known because he came with a sound that sounded like a violent rushing wind. And he came visibly. It looked like tongues of fire coming to rest on each one of the disciples. And he empowered them to speak in other languages, languages they'd never spoken before. Maybe even that they'd never heard before. But he empowered them to speak the gospel to these other people uh, from other places who spoke other languages. And I think one of the main reasons that God allowed them to do that at this point, to speak in these other languages, to, was to show that they have God's anointing. To give God's stamp of approval on the disciples saying, listen to what they have to say about Jesus. Now this does raise a very interesting question about what is tongues all about? What does it mean to speak in tongues? Uh, this is a topic that we will address in this series. But we're going to address it in a few weeks when we get to Acts chapter 10. Uh, partly for sake of time, partly because it's even more applicable there. So come back for that. But the bottom line is that God was carrying out the message of Jesus through the disciples. And there are a lot of people gathered in Jerusalem at that time. It was another Jewish feast at this time. It was 50 days, Pentecost, Penta meaning five, 50 days after the Passover celebration, that was the time when Jesus was crucified. But now they have what's called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits. It was another time where Jews from all over the place were gathered in Jerusalem. And God empowered the disciples, and specifically Peter, to give spirit-empowered preaching about Jesus. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read a few sections of his, his message to the Jews. And keep in mind, it would have carried added bite because these people who were gathered there are some of the same people who would have yelled for Jesus to be crucified. 
Picking up in verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him. And going down to verse 32, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Now over to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. It says that when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So, I mean, you see this level of conviction they have because they were involved and their people were involved in crucifying Jesus. So they're wondering, what do we do now? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them. And he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So we see that people were convicted of their sin. That in itself is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in John 16 that one of the things the Holy Spirit will do is convict the world of guilt in regard to their sin. So they're convicted of their sin. They repent. And 3,000 people come to know Christ on that day all through the power of the Holy Spirit working through the disciples. And so today's turning point that we are looking at is being empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we desire to live a fruitful life as an individual Christian, if we desire to have a fruitful ministry as a church, we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit because it's God who causes growth. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. As I said earlier, we all, if we have faith in Christ, have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. The question is, are we allowing the Spirit to do through us what he wants to do? So it raises the question, the application question, of how are we empowered by the Holy Spirit? How can we be empowered by him? Let me share a few uh, tips and hints. One is by looking at barriers that keep us from being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And one of the barriers is unconfessed sin. It's sin that we aren't dealing with in our lives. Let me give you another illustration. This is um, a piece of pipe that belongs below a sink. If you look underneath the sink in your bathroom or kitchen, you probably have something that looks like this. About once a year in my house, I have to take the pipes apart and clean this thing out because it gets filled with gunk and it's gross. That's why I went out and bought one for $2 yesterday rather than bringing in the one that's on my sink. It gets really gross because, I mean, it gets filled with gunk and you, I mean, it won't let water drain through the sink. The flow of water is hindered. You know, sin in our lives is very similar to this. That if we have sin in our lives that we are not dealing with, it, it clogs up our lives and it prevents the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so the call for us is to confess our sins and to repent. One of the biggest sins that, that 
prevents the flow of the Holy Spirit in our lives is conflict with other Christians. And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul said that when we're in conflict with other Christians, it grieves the Holy Spirit. He's not, he doesn't work in our midst in quite the same way then. And so the key is to confess our sins. And, and John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So unconfessed sin is one of those barriers that can prevent the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And also misplaced dependence where we depend on ourselves or in ministry where we depend on, on our eloquence of speaking or on, on our fancy methods. If we depend on these things, it means the Holy Spirit can't work through us quite as much because our call is to depend on him rather than on ourselves or our own methods. And I want to point out a couple factors that invite the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. One factor is prayer for gospel-centered fruitfulness. You see, the disciples, in that time when they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, they were praying. And prayer for gospel-centered fruitfulness says, you know, I'm, I'm praying that God will be at work. I'm praying that God will work in people's lives to transform lives through the gospel. If you look at revivals down through history, when when God was working in powerful ways to turn hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people to Christ in, in a short period of time, practically every revival in human history can trace its human origin to people who were praying diligently. And so for us, we need to be people of prayer as well. One of the other applications for inviting the Holy Spirit to work is to have passion to see Jesus glorified. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 14, he said that the Holy Spirit will bring glory to me by taking what is mine and making it known to you. That's really the Holy Spirit's main role is to glorify Jesus. And so if that's the Holy Spirit's main passion, that should be our main passion as well. And as we live out that passion to glorify Christ, the Holy Spirit will be more and more free and, and excited to work in and through us. Now, we can't control how the Holy Spirit works. John, or Jesus says in John chapter 3 that the Holy Spirit's like a wind. Uh, they, they, you see the effects of the wind, but you don't see where the wind came from. You don't see where it's going. And the Holy Spirit's the same way, that we don't control the Holy Spirit at all. He works how he wants to work. But uh, my, my prayer for us is that we will be people who will remove the barriers that can prevent the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and that we will be people who, through prayer and through just seeking God's glory, will invite him to come and be at work powerfully in our midst as individuals and as a church and in the broader community. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you didn't leave us alone. You didn't leave us as orphans when you went to heaven. But you sent the promised Holy Spirit. And we thank you, Lord, that you long for us to have power to live out the life that you call us to live. Lord, we pray that we will each be growing and a passion for living for you and growing in our submission to what you want to do in our lives through the Holy Spirit. We pray these things for your glory and in your name. Amen.